Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. And we are rolling live. Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Today, I am very pleased to have on the show Doug Lawrence. Doug is a former RCMP officer, an internationally certified mentor, a suicide intervention guy, and is even certified with crisis response. All these extra courses, were those um, uh, of your own? Did you have to source them yourself, Doug, or was that while you were in the RCMP, did they make those available to you? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I had to source those uh, myself. So, <clears throat> And part of what I, most of those, um, those courses were done after I left the force. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I definitely had to source those myself. While you're in, were there any sources like that available uh, that uh, they would either promote or give you access to? No, and that was, you know, that's the one thing that has always, knowing what I know now, I think I would have been probably more proactive in pushing to get them to put things into place because what what was happening was I'd go out on a call and it would be very traumatic, and when I'd come back, I'd have no one but a bottle of scotch whiskey to turn to for for my support as my support structure and eventually that kind of slid into my wife and children end up becoming sort of my sounding board for lack of a better choice of words and that that just you know that was okay but it wasn't the best possible path I could have taken no the it's right in the culture isn't it you know um drinking to this person drinking to that person even when somebody's dead from alcoholism, we drink to them. It's um, it, it's part of the culture that has to change, and promoting drinking as um, sort of a catch-all, as a recreational activity that uh, should be done on sad occasions, on happy occasions, on any occasion, um, or as therapy, it, it doesn't work. It's a negative feedback loop that's created. It's a depressant. And yeah, it might feel good in the moment, but it, I mean, how many uh, veterans and RC, you know, uh, of both the RCMP and the military end up crawling into a bottle and they can't get out? Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the most common things I hear is, like, well, I, I can't sleep. And it's the only thing I could think of doing is uh, drink myself blind so I could fall asleep so that I didn't have, otherwise I'm going to have the horrible nightmares again. You hear it all the time. And when you're already preconditioned by the culture that alcohol is, you know, this is how we deal with things, um, it's so destructive. It destroys, destructs our own lives, our families, all of it. It's just not good. 
Well, you know, and it, I sort of view it as learned behavior. So I've watched my father go down that slippery path and nobody said that's not acceptable behavior. So you assume that that's okay for how I should deal with things or how I should interact with people is over a drink or two. And that's, you know, definitely not the path that we need to be following because it's, it's not fixing the problem and it's only contributing to it as we go further down that path. Yeah. It's just the habit of the social interaction. Sometimes it's, um, and people can get weirded out if you're the non-drinker. I haven't had a drop in a bit over two years. And so I'll be at a group where everybody's drinking and it's like, Oh, you don't mind if we drink to you? It's like, uh, no, if I minded, I wouldn't have showed up. <laughs> like I, you do you man, like have fun. Uh, th- this is my choice for my reasons. I'm not pushing it on anybody, but, um, uh, a friend of mine used to say that about smoking, you know, well, what else am I going to do? What, what yeah. do you mean? What else are you going to do? Well, I'm with people and I'm drinking. I, you, I have to have a cigarette have to have, Okay, it's it's just part of the social pressure and our habits and our norms. But as a guy that hasn't touched a drop and I've been around soldiers uh, and other uh, events and at bars, it's never been a problem for me. Um, it's just not socially awkward to be the guy that doesn't drink. It's uh, <laughs> I don't understand the barrier for those that want to give it up. You know, it, and I'm the same. I haven't had a drink since 20, January of 2020, and I don't miss it at all. And I, I too, get invited to social gatherings where there's the theme is drinking, you know, drinking all kinds of different stuff. And, you know, what I, sort, what I see that actually is taking place is it's not, it's not that they're weirded out because – I'm not drinking, they're weirded out because they don't know how to deal with it, right? So it, it becomes a, a situation where, well, he's not drinking, so maybe, I don't know, should maybe we need to ask permission. No, you don't need to ask permission to go ahead and continue. Just to be yourself, do your own thing. But what I have found is that I, when I go to the functions and a lot of them are family-like functions, is that I don't necessarily, I'm not in it for the longer period of time. I come put in a put in an appearance. If it's a meal, I you know have the meal, and I usually bring my non-alcoholic uh, drink that I can have if I if I so desire. But the big thing is that um, you do your thing, I'll do mine, and you know, thank you for the invite, and and away we go. I've become addicted to non-alcoholic beer. <laughs> I've become an aficionado of the stuff. The, the, there's two flavors at uh, Superstore, PC brand, that are half the price of anything else and twice as good. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's what I stick with. I uh, can't get enough of that sugar crisp. It's good stuff. but uh, And the taste is just as good. Like years ago, it was like, well, you can't ex- accept me, expect me to drink Molson's excel that stuff is swill it's like yeah that stuff is swill but i mean there's craft beers now there's stout mm-hmm. ipas everything you could imagine you can get access to it's just not that difficult and i mean for myself i'm recovering from ptsd and it's i have to craft a life for myself very very carefully with very careful um, boundaries 
do's and don'ts for myself to stay level. And yeah. when I follow the rules that I know I need to follow, I have the habits that I know I, I need to um, partake in, I'm good. I'm totally good. I slip from the schedule. I'm not good at all. Yeah. And um, alcohol is just one extra ruck in the uh, rock in the rucksack that I don't need. It, um, and it's also a, an example for the kids, for myself. You know, I, I mm-hmm. quit for a lot of reasons, but I want them to see that that's an option, should they choose. That there's no reason that you have to drink because of social pressure. pressure. If you choose to drink, that's your choice. But it's your choice. And you can choose. Yeah. You can choose either way. And I give them the. I don't tell them what to do. I just give them the pros and cons. And uh, when they get to that age, which my oldest is fifteen, almost sixteen, so he's right there. You know, um, he'll he'll be starting any day, uh, or his friends will anyway. I want him to have the choice and to be the example yeah. of that choice. Um, too many dead alcoholics in my family. Way too many. So I've got that in my head too. You know, um, and w- once you've gone dry and you do it publicly, and it's all part of like, oh, my shirt here, recover out loud. It's all p- part of doing that out loud. It inspires others to do the same. And quite a mm-hmm. few others have reached out to me privately. I don't know why they want to keep it a secret. I'm supposed to recover out loud and go, hey, I'm not drinking because of you. I'm like, oh, no, you're actually not drinking because of you. I may have just exactly. put, put the idea in your head, but this is all on you. So good job. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's, I, I'm I'm learning so much because like I'm 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 on the I still am dealing with post traumatic stress because uh, I still get the flashbacks and that from different things that I I witnessed. Yeah. Um, but what but what's happened now is it's now shifted into the world of grief because I lost my wife to cancer in 2021, and so now my PTS has now got a grief factor that's part of the whole journey that I'm on. So it's it's challenging. Incredibly so. I mean, I haven't talked about the trauma cup in a while, or call it a bucket, whatever kind of vessel that you want. Um, you could feel totally fine and solid and level. And your trauma cup is at uh, seven-eighths full, but you still mm-hmm. feel fine. But you only have that last eighth before it overflows and you don't feel fine. And all the symptoms come out and it pushes it over. And the loss of a spouse, my goodness, um, you know, that's that's a quarter of a cup right there all by itself. That's significant. So if you're already hovering around uh, uh, the top of a full full trauma vessel, um, a major event like that could tip you right over. Uh, Last year... um, Last uh, April, I had a very, very major event. Thought I could handle it. Thought I could handle it. Thought I could handle it. Ended up with a suicide attempt last year. I had a psychotic break where uh, my brain just wasn't thinking right. And I Mm -hmm. freaking went for it. Um, Couldn't believe it. And and in in hindsight, I'm like, how in the hell did I get to that place? But because the cups are already mostly full... And a big traumatic event can surprise you and blindside you and push you over that edge. And which is also why I'm as um, guarding as I am of my boundaries and barriers and mm-hmm. um, 
because I've got to stay level. I can never, ever allow myself to get back to that place. Yeah, because it's so easy to, once you start to make that shift back, it's very, it's almost double the, the, the effort to get back where you are balanced again. Well, like any goal, you know, I, I try to have people understand that PTSD recovery, recovery is a, like a Mount Everest. You can do it, but it's a bitch. But you can do it. But you got to be strong. But you can do it. But it takes yeah. preparation. But you can do it. But it takes equipment and resources and help. And But you can do it. And to do it, you just got to be a stronger version of yourself. The strongest version of yourself that you ever thought possible. You, there's no way around it. If you do not become that strongest version of yourself, which you can do, but you got to do the work, you're not going to make it. Uh, you're going to struggle. You're going to suffer. I mean, you might live a long life, but you're going to suffer. And uh, all you have to do is get stronger. Well, and the big thing I find is, and this is what I tell a lot of the people, is that it's okay to, you know, to say I need help. And uh, as the sort of the analogy I use is open the door to your closet, step outside, extend your hand and say, please, I need help. And, and when somebody offers to provide that help, embrace it and start to move forward. Because without that, you're going to, you may make inroads, but they may not be as good as or as great as what we would like to see. Yeah, that's it. No, with all the courses that uh, you've had, and, and God bless you for taking them, they're so important. Um, what would you say are some of the do's and don'ts for trauma intervention, let's say suicide inf- intervention, where you think somebody is on the bubble and you're going to be the person that's doing something about it and approaching the person? What does that look like? And what are some of the do's and don'ts? Uh, you know, the the the... It's not. It's about engaging in a conversation. Uh, from from the aspect of do's and don'ts, one of the big things is um, listen and hear what the individual is talk saying, and from that you're going to be able to determine, you know, what what is my next step that I'm I need to take or want to take with this particular individual. But the listening and hearing aspect of it is certainly one thing, and that's the coming at it from the mentoring perspective is that we, we talk about, we teach people to be great listeners when they're mentoring somebody. It's, it's all about listening and hearing, not telling them what they need to do because they need to embrace the journey that they're about to go on. Well, let's pause there for a moment and explore the listening bit. Cause this is something there might've even been a couple of eye rolls in the audience when they heard that, because they've heard it so many times. But I would ask that the audience pause when they hear um, again and again and again that listening is the number one thing to do. Because listening is an action if you do active listening. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. why it's called active listening. It is an action. And it feels like, but I want to do something. You are. Shutting your pie hole and listening um, is something. But there's more to it than just not talking, although that is a big part of it. Uh, how would you describe true listening and active listening and effective listening? Like, what does that look like? And how do you know when you're screwing it up? You'll know. <laughs> Trust me, you'll, you'll know. 
but for me, like with mentoring and, and how we come at it, we come at it from what I call effective communication. So there's the aspect or the art of listening and hearing. So I may, I may listen to what you're saying, but I'm not actually hearing what the message is that you're telling me. And so then what I also suggest to people is listen for trigger words in the conversation. So as an example, well, I, I was working with a, a person and I said, help me understand why we're where we are today and where, where you would like to be. Well, I don't think I can, I think I've gone as far as I can go. I don't think there's, there's no other place for me to go. And so that tells me that message right there by itself is a self-esteem, self-confidence, lack thereof. And we need to focus on that, using that as an example. The other part is, I, so I talk about listening for the trigger words, but I also talk about listening from the aspect of, um, where am I going with this? Uh, with, the, with the trigger words, obviously. But I'm also looking at it from the aspect of um, the ability to, Pause and ref- and listen to the conversation. So actually using your active listening skills, but pause and ask yourself, if I say what I'm thinking, how is that going to be received? And if I think that it's going to be received poorly, then I need to reword it and then approach the person again. And And that may come where you have to do that more often than not. But what also does is your skills as a communicator will continue to grow the more times you have to do that. So from our effective communication, I always say to people, you know, if I do a quick summary is active listening. So listening and hearing uh, trigger words in a conversation, sometimes watch for deflections. Uh, the other part is the pausing technique, which is the one where I, I suggested that what we, you know, pause and, and think about how is it going to be received and, and then the whole aspect of it, it's all about in in your conversation with the individual. It's not about telling them what to do to resolve the issues. It's about asking questions to help guide them to the answers that they need. I would um, add to that that one of the don'ts of listening is making it about yourself, which is yeah. well-intentioned. We say, well, you know, just want it to be relatable. Let them know that they're not alone. No, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. Don't make it about yourself. And how that would look is, well, you know, I understand that because one time my uncle Jimmy uh, went, okay, you're talking about yourself. Yeah. Even if it's about your uncle Jimmy or a friend or other family member, you're still talking about yourself and your experience. Or, yeah, I think I could understand that because this one time at band camp, this thing happened to me. Yeah. 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 Okay, you're talking yeah. about yourself. Shut up. Shut yeah. up. This is not you time. You can get your you time somewhere else. This is a crisis intervention. You're there for them. And uh, I think that has got to be the biggest oopsie. And it really boils down to ego. Where yeah. uh, even in a, in a suicidal uh, state and you're trying to help somebody, it's still about you? Oh, my God. <laughs> Shut up. Stop it. You know? Um, but it's, it's a strong urge and those that always make things about themselves, oh, they should, you know, um, it's really tough for them to to stop, but they have to, 
or they're they're gonna not be helpful not be not be helpful at all and you know and and the more that you focus on it from it being all about you, you're going to miss the tell, telltale signs that are there that the, the person that you're working with is giving, going to be so absorbed. Geez, I wonder how or where I'm going to be able to slip in one of my stories and, and all that sort of thing. And instead of listening and hearing what the person is actually saying. Or going on and on about how upset you're making me by, being the person that's listening to this, I'm so upset that you're going through this. And he's like, Oh, great. So I, I'm feeling guilty, ashamed, whatever. And now I should feel more guilty and more ashamed because now I'm upsetting you. <laughs> it's not about you. Shut up. Just stop it. Um, any other giant pit pitfalls when attempting to be active listening? Um, the the one and I just I I had I have to use a story or an example but the one that came out was I was probably two three weeks ago now that I was um, one of the people I've been mentoring for quite a period of time for years actually um, had called me up and said I need to talk and so we have the conversation and making a long story really short it it ended up where. I could tell that this person needed some help that was beyond what I should be able to, or what I should do. And so therefore I said, you know, I, I, I'm not the right person to help you. I, I think we need to get some professional help. (coughs) Excuse me. And we kind of we had a conversation about that and, and we got to a place where we both agreed on the path that we needed to follow but what it was was that for, as a mentor working in the mental health space one of the things that i needed to make sure was that i still even though i was suggesting other people be involved in the healing process i also wanted that individual to know that I was going on this journey with them. I was, I would stand beside them and I would walk with them as they went on their healing journey so that they didn't need to be concerned about all of a sudden, all the people that are supporting me are all different and I don't know who they are and I don't have the trust and I don't have all of that stuff. So it was about me um, walking beside and, and, and providing them access to the resources that they may need to alter or change their uh, healing uh, journey. And I think the, perhaps the final word on, on listening skills when you're in that situation is to listen to understand, not to reply. And that's, again, getting your ego out of the damn way. Setting yeah. your ego aside so that it's not about uh, you, but you listen to truly, truly understand um, and, and use the five W's. You know, that's why the, the, the show W5, that's what it stands for. It's the five W's, who, what, where, when, why, and how. You know, ask, go through the five W's with somebody to truly try to understand what they're going through without any judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, without thinking, oh, God, that's terrible. Or how could you do that? <laughs> you know, just yeah. put, put, put that all aside. Uh, even if it's like, I, yeah, I kicked my dog this morning or I slapped my wife. Okay, that's horrible shit. But, you know, check your face, (laughs) check your face, make sure you're not reacting to it. And um, uh, has it happened before? Uh, How long has that been going on? 
Mm. You know, don't act, don't react with shock and awe. But um, uh, how, and how do you feel about that? You know, and uh, mm-hmm. and and just ask, 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 ask. But don't tell. Just listen without judgment. Yeah. And, um, and it's like a like a confessional, only without exactly. any any hail marys after. Uh, just just listen without judgment, and yeah. and without being shocked and appalled. Because sometimes when you're in a traumatic state, you do things that uh, you know are wrong, <laughs> but uh, the moment got the best of you. So mm-hmm. if, if that's the case, you know, just listen. Yeah. How long were you a Mountie? 25. That's a full career. And what, yeah. year, what year did you get out? I left in 19... 19- 98. 98. So I know for a fact that in 1998, there were no mental health supports. And on your exit, uh, you know, there was no process to see on how you're doing. Do you remember any conversation about PTSD back in the late 90s? None. None. And, and, and that was the, you know, the, the big thing was I was in places where I was stationed by myself. Yeah. And I, if something happened that was traumatic, I had nobody that I could debrief with other than my wife and, and kids. And some of that is just not stuff you're going to share with family either. So no. um, there, there was, because I think of a number of different situations that took place that I I still to this day don't know how I got through without there being more challenging outcomes that that would have impacted me like we may not be having this conversation today it's it, uh, funny that it hasn't occurred to me till this conversation just how brutal and how different it is to be a Mountie than it is uh, with CPS I mean please work your often one and two person units like that's it that's all that's all you got but as a mountie you could be a one or two person unit in the middle of bloody nowhere um like the fish cops you know the fish and wildlife folks totally isolated middle of nowhere and not a lot that they can do about it um and that's an unnerving thing for a, a portion of my uh tour in croatia we had one and two person well uh two and three pe- uh, people um patrols in super sketchy spots and uh that's not a good feeling because you're completely exposed and something goes sideways not a lot you can do about it yeah it's i think of two places that i was at one i was there with somebody else but um he was the sort of individual that wasn't um, it was, I'm, you're the junior person. So you, you go on all the calls and you deal with all the stuff. And I had one situation where it, it was, uh, it was a suicide and we, we were eight hours by vehicle in the middle of winter to the closest morgue. And so I ended up, I'm junior person. I ended up, um, having to haul the body to the morgue, which was, like I said, eight hours away. And, I had, when I came back, there was none, you know, you would think that the common sense approach would be, let's sit down and have a conversation about how you're feeling. 
because, you know, I know you had some emotional attachment to the individual and all that sort of stuff. There was none of that. And then, you know, I, I was in the Eastern Arctic in a one-person uh, location. Closest backup was 30, 30 minutes by aircraft. And when stuff happened and when stuff went down, um, I had no one other than my wife to turn to to say, this is how I'm feeling. And I, I'm afraid of where this could go. And it's unfair to have that on our spouse. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, especially without any training, without any, um, <laughs> any preparation for it. It's, uh, it's a hell of a position to be in. But, you know, that's the one thing about lots of resilience on the part of my wife, Deborah, for, you know, she stepped in and said, you know, underneath the covers of, of us, I know that there's, uh, a, there's the real Doug that wants to come out and that you're being, you know, held back because of all the stuff that's coming at you, all the trauma, all the turmoil, all of that stuff. And you, you are not getting any support from anyone else. And so she was resilient enough, number one, to recognize that. And number two, to say, I can fill that void for now. And then, you know, we'll obviously have to figure something else out as, and it could very well be after we leave that place and go to someplace else. Like so many others, um, once people get out and they realize that they're injured and they go through the healing journey, they become helpers and healers themselves, which you've done. So let's talk a little bit about being a certified, international certified mentor. What, what does that even mean and uh, what does that look like? So the certification is provided by the international mentoring community. So it's, it's an organization that was created with the idea in mind of certifying mentors, which doesn't really exist today. But the idea behind it is to provide some process and concepts that are in alignment with um, ISO standards. So, like, for example, the people is ISO 17024. There's a verification process that you have to go through that's covered by one of the uh, ISO standards as well. So the idea behind it was, and this is kind of, was kind of my dream back in 2007, I guess it was. Yeah, I think it was 2007, was to create an independent body for the certification of mentors. And so that's a business partner who ironically works, uh, who works and lives in Calgary. And... He, uh, he looks after the certification process and the certifying of people, and I focus on helping people with the, the practice of mentoring. So from that perspective is how can I become a better mentor working with individuals, and will going through the certification process actually help me do that? So we've you, you basically uh, complete... Um, you complete a self-assessment based on 76 or 77 different action outcome statements. And it's either, yes, I have the experience or no, I don't. And if you don't, then we have to help you or not have to help you, but we will help you find where you can get that, that knowledge and, and then put it into practice. And then you do a uh, two or three case studies 
and you have a mentoring log and then you appear before a verification panel. Typically, well, when I went, it was uh, five people who verified that I was at, at that time that I was competent to practice as a mentor. And so that's kind of the, the, the in a short form, that's kind of the idea behind becoming an international certified mentor. So when you say practice, is this something that uh, you receive funding for or is this a volunteer uh, role? Um, you mean the actual practice of mentoring? Yes. It both. Okay. So, yeah. So there's some pro bono that gets done. So volunteering to work with people where there is no funding available. And so I'll give you, you know, I, I work with uh, the Sir Richard Branson Entrepreneur Program in the Caribbean where I provide mentorship, voluntary mentoring uh, for their uh, working with people, uh, young people that are trying to start their own business in the Caribbean. I also work with um, an organization called Futurepreneur here in Canada. Same sort of thing. They work with young entrepreneurs and part of their program has an element of mentoring in it as well. And then I also work with American corporate partners in the United States to help U.S. military personnel transition from service to civilian life. Tell me more about that. So that I ended up, I applied, I saw that they were advertising, looking for mentors. And so, (coughs) excuse me, I, um, I had applied and was accepted to be to become one of their their mentors. And so what they do is as you're getting close to your release date from the military, they will assign you with a mentor who will work with you to help you um, on your job hunting path, as well as dealing with. um, I know for me, the, the people I work with, we we have conversations about uh, working our way through the, the PTS that they're dealing with. And I know that a lot of other mentors aren't comfortable having that conversation yet, which is something that, you know, we definitely need to, to work on to get the mentoring community more comfortable with, with the whole PTS, uh, PTSD uh, situation. So, so yeah, so that's, um, I've had, probably three or four now service people that I've worked with that, uh, <clears throat> that have had, you know, some pretty uh, horrific experiences. Um, and, and we've been able to work through those as, you know, as best we can. My most recent one is, is uh, a young lady that um, I th- think her official retirement she's gone through and she's done the retirement thing but her official retirement date i think is november and we've been fortunate enough to help her secure uh, a job and we're also working on addressing some of the mental health challenges or issues that she she's that she has that we we need to work through as a mentor how do you address mental health challenges uh, you know, what I typically like to do is it comes back to listening and hearing. And it's all about, as a mentor, you know, recognizing that there's something there that we need to explore further. And and then once we've recognized that is to find out, are they comfortable in sharing some of that? And if they are, then we can have a conversation about 
what can I do to help and who else do we need to plug them in into in order to be able to do that. The one thing with mentoring in the mental health space is you have to be very careful that you don't cross over. And by that, <coughs> excuse me, and by that I mean that I don't step into the space where a social worker or a counselor or a psychologist or psychiatrist, I, I don't, I'm not supposed to be doing what they are supposed to be doing, I guess is kind of the easiest way. What are some of the resources that you'll um, direct people towards? Uh, you know, what I've been doing so far is, number one, I always ask the question when we, we agree to have the conversation on mental health, I always ask the question, what professional help are you uh, having or getting today so that I'm not reinventing the wheel, so to speak? And then from there, I suggest other other places that they can get resources so you know um the uh, the mental health folks there's i'm in, involved in some support to peer-to-peer uh, support groups that i can suggest that those are part of that as well um and and then you know different resources that that i come across that i think are going to be good you know like Operation Tango Romeo didn't know it existed. Now I do. Now I can take that and leverage that as a place for people to to go to get the, you know, the help that they they may need or the resources that they may need. So it's it's about not always being the person that the fixer, but it's also it's more so about being able to know where to guide. And I think that's the most important thing from a mentoring perspective. There's nowhere to guide. Well, it's such a fractured community in the supports yeah. community. Uh, there's infighting <laughs> where where uh, some of the resource providers are uh, scrapping with the others or bad mouthing each other. It's uh, it's a funny, funny space to be in. Um, this show, one of the things that it provides is I'm an aggregate. So I think this is episode number 240 or 241, something like that. Um, experts from around the world, modalities from, from around the world. So anything that somebody is curious about, well, chances are pretty good that I've got a few episodes on it. You just scroll through the list and, uh, and away you go. Um, and for a lot of folks, asking for help is the hardest thing that they'll ever do in their life. So if they just come here first and listen to shows like this episode that we're doing right now, realize that they're not alone, and then go, hmm, I wonder what what works for me. Like, what am I prepared to do right now? Because perhaps people aren't interested in a group atmosphere or perhaps they're not interested in uh, in talk therapy for whatever reason that's all fine there's a lot of other ways to do it um, simply being a listener numerous people have told me that that is what has given them the strength to take that next step for help so go through the show list have a look see what you can find and um, I think I hear your washer or dryer in the background there that's my furnace Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> it's it's cooking. Yeah. But um, uh, on your uh, Yeti microphone, there's a there's a gain function. Yeah, it'll be on the back of it. Maybe just turn the gain down a little bit.
How's that? I think that's a little bit better than all just on this set. And I, uh, I, I hope the audience didn't hear the lawn service going off earlier. <laughs> it's been a, a lucky morning, I tell you. But um, is that your full time uh, uh, work that you're doing now? Uh, like no, how, no. how much? So you're like a, on a full time schedule with with mentoring and whatnot. Yes. Yeah. So I, you know, I, it's a combination of um, face-to-face and virtual, especially. Uh, so I was supposed to be in one location where I'm working with the leadership team of a, of a uh, school, a Catholic school. And with getting, ending up with COVID, we had to switch the one appointment that we had scheduled for face-to-face. We had to switch to virtual. And so we had to, you know, be able to deal with that. But I do, uh, I'm, I'm spending a lot of my time and effort on, on the aspect of getting us to a place where mentoring is recognized as um, a, an element or a piece to the uh, support structure for mental health. That's where a lot of my energy is has been spent the last few months is getting us to that place and and then putting things into into practice for people to be able to work with individuals who somebody comes to you and you have a conversation and you go, you know, this could be somebody sounds like it's bipolar, but I'm not here to diagnose. So let's ask some questions, you know, I get a sense that, you know, you want to tell me a little bit about yourself. I actually, when I think of that, ironically, I had a new person that I was, uh, that I am mentoring and we started to have the conversation virtually and within five to 10 minutes, uh, they opened up and said, well, I've been diagnosed with this, 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 and this. And my husband has been diagnosed with this and this. And so right away, I can customize how I'm going to work with them, how I'm going to be able to hopefully bring value to the journey that they're on. Would you say that the definition of a mentor, does it boil down to being a walking example that others can aspire to be? Yeah, I I would go with that. That's I would go with that. part of the reason why I quit drinking. It's um, because if I'm going to be in this role within the, the community, plus my phone tends to go off at, uh, <laughs> at all hours, and I don't want to be answering the phone drunk or, or even, no. even with a couple, of, uh, a couple of drinks in me. It's, I, it's just not something that I can do. You know, that's, that's not okay. I kinda always, I'm always on call. Even though I'm not a crisis line, but and please don't use me as a crisis line. That's not my role in this uh, world. But um, it happens sometimes, regardless. And I've got to be on my toes. And if I got yeah. a couple of drinks in me, that could uh, that could cost a life. So yeah, so many reasons not to for myself. <laughs> at the same time, not judging anybody that does. It doesn't. I don't care at all. This is just yeah. my my decision for me for my life. It uh, doesn't work for me. It doesn't work at all. How do people get a hold of you, Doug? 
Um, they can, there's a number of different ways. Number one is the website, www.talentc, so the word talent, letter C on the end, dot C-A. Um, and there's a contact me page on, on there that you can get a hold of me that way. You can reach me through LinkedIn, so just search on Doug Lawrence and it should pop up. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn, so you should be able to find me there and then you can message me through that. And then just to make your life a little bit easier, you can email me direct at doug.lawrence at talent C, so the word talent with the letter C on the end, dot C-A, and just send me an email and I'll get back to you. And, you know, we'll, we can go from there. Okay, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, jump onto your LinkedIn profile and get those links for the show notes so that people can uh, find you easily through the show notes. Okay, perfect. Easy peasy. Anything that uh, you wanted to cover that I haven't covered that I haven't asked about? I don't think so, no. You know, you. I kind of had a little chuckle. You kind of alluded to in one of your the statements you made about you are not alone, and ironically, that's my... My last book that I published was You Are Not Alone, which is the story about mentoring and mental health. So the aspect of mentoring being a part of mental health. And in that book, I, I tell um, some of my own personal stories. And it, it made the Amazon uh, number one bestseller list. So it's it was something I hadn't planned on happening, and it, and it did. So... That's no, no small thing. Uh, it, just writing a book is a big deal. Getting it published over the finish line is a big deal. But actually having it as a bestseller, that does not happen every day. So congrats no, on that. No. I'll make sure that I go Thank to uh, uh, Amazon Books, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, brother. Please stay in the line. You're listening Hello. to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families, including those RCMP folks. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember... To recover out loud.